Good to be back with you all again after being away last week. Uh, some of you know that Shonda and I and the boys ran off to St. Louis to spend some time with Shonda's family, and I want you to know that I missed you all, and uh, it's really good to be back with you and gathered worship. It's really, it's really a, a special treasure to be a part of this church family, and so thank you for having me, and I and, uh, want to say thank you for that. As we lean into this new year, uh, some of you know that Last year, leading all the way up to Advent, we were investigating some of the questions that Jesus asked, and uh, I got two more for you, one this week and one next week before we conclude this series, and, uh, and sometimes these questions come just when Jesus is walking and talking with people along the way, they just pop up during normal conversation. Uh, sometimes they come as a part of his teaching, where he's really trying to expose something Uh, in us or in the people that were listening to him at the time. And this morning's question is really a little bit of both. Who made me judge or arbitrator uh, over you? Um, Many, many people are there when he asks this question. The context is set in verse 1 of this chapter, Luke chapter 12, and it says there there were, uh, the, the crowd was huge. There were just a, a tremendous number of people that were gathering around listening to what Jesus had to say, so much so that they were all trampling over each other uh, to get close to Jesus. And that verse says that Jesus saw the crowd and began talking to his disciples. That, that's really interesting. He, uh, he began talking to those people that were following Jesus, had professed to follow Jesus, but he wanted those who were listening to him also to be able to overhear how he was talking to his people. Uh, And and Jesus begins talking about just very practical things. Uh, He talks about how following him, what that has to say about how we think about our earthly leaders. Uh, He he talks about how following him, what that has to say about the things that we're afraid of and our anxieties. And uh, then he talks this morning's passages about what he has to say about how Following him has to do with one of the most practical things at all, how we, how we think about our money and our possessions. Let's look together. This is Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, But he said to him, he, Jesus, said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Jesus, to hear your words is life. 
your teaching is wisdom itself. So I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, uh, hearts uh, with courage to receive uh, what you have to say to us this morning. And I pray that you would help me, your servant, to be faithful to your, your teaching here, to love these friends well, uh, to speak in fidelity uh, with your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Leo Tolstoy was a Russian writer. Uh, Many of you have probably heard his name before. He wrote a short story in 1886 uh, that James Joyce called the greatest story the literature of the world has ever produced. Uh, And you might have read it. It might have come up during an English lit class somewhere along the way. It's titled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it's publicly available online if you want to check it out. You can find it pretty easily. But it centers on a Russian peasant... Uh, who always wanted more for himself. He wanted more money and he wanted more land to produce this money that he desired. And uh, in doing so, he entered into a really strange deal with uh, a local tribe who was selling land. They were selling off large parcels of land. And they said to him that for a thousand rubles, that he could walk as much of that land in a day as possible and everything he walked in a circuit Uh, he could have for himself. Uh, The deal was that he had to place little markings along the way to mark his path, and he had to get back to the starting point uh, by the end of the day. So sun up to sundown was his time frame, and he thought this was a great deal. So he gave them his money, and the next day he uh, started walking. They were all there, and he starts walking, and he he had a moderate path uh, set out for him, moderately ambitious path set out for himself. Uh, but what he found is that the more he walked, that this physical test was really a challenge uh, of the desires of his heart. Because as he went along, he kept seeing parcels of land that were attractive to him. And so he would widen his path in order to include that too. And then he would see trees that he thought would serve as good lumber for things he wanted to build. And so he'd widen his path a little more. And he kept making these decisions all along the way, following his heart's desire to include more and more and more and what he could get in a day. That uh, so much so that as the day began to end, he realized that he was really still very far away from, uh, from the end point where he needed to get back to in order to close the deal. And so he abandons his path and he, he races the sun in order to get back. And he pushes and he pushes and he's already tired. Uh, and he's just pushing and pushing and pushing to get back to the starting point. And as he nears the point, the people gathered there are all cheering him on and saying, come on, come on, come on. And he keeps coming and he keeps coming. And and what we find is that he used all of his strength in order to just get back to, to, to where he had arrived. That he reaches the end point, he barely crosses over in time, and then he falls, then he falls down dead. Tolstoy writes a story about how these physical tests outpace can't, can't live up to the challenges of the heart. The reason I'm bringing this up is, is because Tolstoy wrote an amazing story, a really incredible story, about the, in, intimate, the intimate connection that exists between the things that we own and the things we desire for ourselves and the matters of the heart. 
And in this passage, what we see is that Jesus is asked a question about an inheritance. And he immediately begins to challenge the heart. That's what he does. Be on guard against covetousness or greed. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. These are heart issues that he is talking about here. And really the whole passage is Jesus challenging our hearts on this topic. So what I want to do is talk about how Jesus speaks to our hearts by talking about money. Happy fun time, right? So here's what I want to do. First, we'll talk about the demands of the heart that we see in this passage. Then we'll talk about the desires of the heart. And then finally, we will talk about the correction Jesus offers to our hearts. First, the demands of the heart. I'm calling this the demand of the heart because the question thrown at Jesus in verse 13 isn't really a question so much as a a demand. Did you see that? Uh, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, He is... He is uh, telling Jesus that what he is to say to somebody else. Uh, and so whoever this man is, he's coming to Jesus with a fair amount of gumption. I think you could, you could call it that. So what I want to talk about is why, why in the world is he asking this of Jesus? And finally, I want to talk about what actually he is asking for. So why and then what? First, why? Why does this man ask Jesus to intercede in an inheritance matter. Well, the first thing to know is that this actually wasn't all that rare during that time, that, uh, that it was fa- actually fairly common to bring rabbis or teachers of the law into an inheritance matter that is in dispute. It, it, uh, it appears, at least, that inheritances can be as messy then as they can be now, and there's significant Old Testament law that has something to say about how wealth gets passed on from generation to generation. You see Leviticus has law uh, included in it, describes some of what to do. You also see it in Deuteronomy and Numbers 27. There's this really interesting story about an inheritance case being brought before Moses to adjudicate. And so uh, it wasn't rare for whenever there was an inheritance dispute for it to get settled in the temple court. And you see this guy is coming to Jesus as a teacher. He calls him teacher. That's the word rabbi. He calls him a teacher. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't a part of the temple court. Like he's not a part of any uh, synagogue. He's not a part of their system. He, he's not a member of the Sanhedrin. So what's really going on here? Well, if this, if this guy has been following Jesus around uh, for any amount of time, he's probably heard Jesus talk about money at some point. Like, if, if you opened up the book of Luke and read it from one end to the other, I don't know if you could go more than a chapter without, you know, how we think about our possessions or how we think about our money being brought up. Jesus talks about it a lot. And, and specifically, he's talking, he talks a lot about how, what we, how we think about our wealth or our positions, how it actually reflects what we believe about who he is. It start, just give me, let me give you a few examples. It starts in, in Luke chapter 3. Uh, 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 people come to John the Baptist and say, what should we do? How should we repent? And John the Baptist immediately starts talking about possessions. He says, he who has two tunics should share with those who have none. He says, tax collectors should only collect what they're due. Uh, and uh, soldiers should stop exhorting people out of their money. He's saying that, the, you know, the honor 
and the genero- sorry the 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 generosity uh, uh, with which we you know live out our vocations and the way the way we treat wealth or possessions uh, has a, a very direct relation to what we believe. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus affirms tithing to the temple. In Luke chapter 16, he talks about lovers of money. Luke chapter 19 is a really interesting story. That's the story of Zacchaeus. And, uh, and Zacchaeus was an unjust tax collector for a long time. He comes to faith in Jesus and is following him. And as a direct result of that, he begins to repay what he has taken many times over, multiplied over many times. It was this reflection Uh, This generosity comes as a reflection of what he had come to believe about who Jesus is. And it seems that everywhere Jesus goes, he doesn't necessarily indict being wealthy. uh, But what he's talking about is how what we do, there's this connection that exists. How what we do with our money is a reflection on who we are and what we believe. And we know this because he talks about it a lot. And it's just pretty easy to believe that this guy comes to Jesus. Maybe he is asking Jesus to do for him what the Sanhedrin couldn't do. Or maybe he just knows Jesus cares about these things a lot, that he talks about them a lot. That's why. Now, what? What is he asking for? Well, he may be asking for justice. He may be asking for what's just. But what it seems like here he's asking for is for favor. He, he's the, this is a demand, rule in my favor. Force my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And maybe that would be just, we don't know. But it seems impertinent. And, and you, you, you can tell because of Jesus' response to this man. He calls him man as if he were a stranger. Man who made me judge or arbitrator over you. Now, this whole thing is fascinating, but... This is particularly interesting to me. Uh, Jesus refuses to get drawn into this inheritance dispute as a judge, but then he, he then goes on to tell a story uh, that ends in judgment. Now, why is he doing that? Because in this dispute, Jesus is hearing something and seeing something in the heart of this person that is of much greater concern to Jesus than, than how this case gets worked out. He calls it covetousness, the desire to have something that's not yours. Uh, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, the word for covetousness is very, the word for to covet is very, very similar to the word for greed, the incessant desire to have more. Do not covet is one of the, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, note, and those are the demands of the heart that we're talking about. Notice, too, that Jesus is no longer just speaking to the guy that said something to him. In verse 14, he says, To him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you. In verse 15, he says, To them, to them all, guard against covetousness. In Jesus' mind, everyone present needs to hear what he has to say on this. And perhaps one of the places where this becomes most clear, our own struggle with covetousness or greed or desire for more or maybe desire for one for things that we don't have can come up during during inheritance. The New York Times uh, 
produced an article several years ago. It's a really interesting article. It's written by a woman named Carrie Hammond, and uh, it's titled How to Talk About Family Money. Uh, she makes the point. She, it was really interesting. She talks about, she talks to a psychologist who also helps families with inheritance matters. And uh, she makes the point that an inheritance is always about far more than just the wealth, okay? It's, it's about far more than the math of it, what, what is available, what's getting passed on, and how it gets divided up. Uh, she calls it more of a quantifying reality of how family operates. Uh, she says, all the family system, the good, the difficult, surfaces in these times. This is the quote. The money may get passed on. But it travels with all the family dynamics, the resentments, the jealousies, the favoritism, the avoidance of conflicts. That's the real inheritance that siblings have to deal with. It all comes up. The good and the bad. Your family might have a story like this. I can tell you mine does. Stories like this aren't rare. Why? Because our money is pointing at something. The fact that, that, that it can create pain that can transcend generations says it has more to do with, with just the math of it. It has to do with the depths of our hearts and what we desire and what we've been given and how, how we treat each other and how people treat us. And so that's why it makes sense that Jesus cautions these demands of the heart and then goes on to tell a parable that speaks to the desires of the heart. Verse 19 is an articulated desire of the heart. Notice who this rich fool is what we'll call him. Notice who he is talking to. He's talking to his own soul. He says, soul, you have many goods laid up for yourself. The soul is the the heart of the will and the affections and the emotions, decisions get made there. That's the seat of all those things. And he expresses this desire. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now that's a desire that's expressed, that you would come to a point in your life where you have enough stored up that you can enjoy the rest of your life. Then you can enjoy, if you have enough saved up forever, only then are you actually able to enjoy your life now. Does that sound, does that sound at all familiar to you? It's like the end of toil, the end of anxiety, the end of ever worrying about not having enough. I mean, this is a desire that is articulated here, but it's, but it's very familiar to us. It's a, it's a very close desire of our own hearts too. But God comes to him, and he calls him a fool. Now, why? Why Why is that foolishness to God? Well, let's talk about how he got this wealth in the first place. Look back at verse 18. Where did the wealth come from? The land of a rich man produced plentifully, okay? Uh, So the first thing to notice is that this man was already wealthy. He he, He already had means, okay? He was just given more before he came into this... To this, uh, to this windfall, and uh, he, ha- he also hasn't done anything wrong. He, uh, he came by this all honestly. Uh, so what I, one of the things I want you to see here is Jesus is not indicting the fact, that, the fact of this man's wealth. He's not uh, saying that he came by, uh, came by it dishonestly. What he's actually saying is that it, it appears 
that the land produced this wealth, that, that it appears that God made him wealthy because we don't see him doing anything different this year with his land than he had done in previous years. The, the, the sun and the rain, the lack of disease and pestilence had all worked itself out in his favor in such a way. But what this produced is a real challenge. What am I going to do with all of this? My, I don't have enough storage space for all of this. It produced a, a challenge for him that's going to require wisdom as, as he thinks about it. He needs a solution, and to solve this problem, he's going to need wisdom. Now, what's his solution? I'll build bigger barns, and you see the wisdom that guides the solution pop out very, very clearly in verse 17 and 18. What's the wisdom that guides him? Look at the pronouns. That's what you need to see in this passage. It's a lot of first person singular. Do you see it? What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. If you include verse 19, he uses the word my four times, and he uses the word I eight times. What is he concerned about? And more importantly, what is Jesus saying to us about the relationship between foolishness and the good life? What's he saying? You know, I don't think, I don't think that you actually have to be a Christian to wrap our heads around this. Uh, famous actor and comedian Jim Carrey said famously uh, several years ago, he said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know that's not the answer. That's what he said. I think he would agree with G- what Jesus says in verse 15, that life is about so much more than the abundance of your possessions. He would agree with that. But I'll tell you that, and maybe you all can help me with this, or maybe you, you resonate with this. I've always found statements like that enlightening and also at the same time somewhat dissatisfying. Enlightened because it's good to think about life as so much more than what we have, right? Like we, we can embrace that idea. But dissatisfying because it offers nothing else in its place. If life isn't about that, then what is it about? And, and I also think it's important to note that Jesus has moved the conversation from just talking about possessions and money. He is now talking about life itself. The purpose with, the purpose with which we live it. How we understand the common good. Uh, what our fundamental orientation is toward ourselves or toward those things around us. Like, how do we think about this? And, and how do we think about the awesome responsibility that we've all been given just by having a life to live? How do we think about these things? Jesus has moved the conversation completely into this area. And there's no shortage of wisdom out there that will speak to these things. Like we, we, we don't have to go far to find somebody that's speaking to these questions. Like every religious 
expression or every ideology has something to say to, like offers us wisdom that seeks to guide us in how we think about these things. Well, what is the wisdom that Jesus offers us here in this passage that guides us in these weighty questions that affect us in the most practical ways? Well, there's no mistaking that when Jesus offers corrections to our heart as we think about these things, that, that God appears on the scene. That God is actually wisdom itself, living, living with a conscious awareness of who God is, is what the Bible would say is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. First, what we see is that there is some kind of, a, I looked for accounting terms when I was thinking of these next two subpoints. so please uh, just, you know, uh, humor me. Uh, first, we see some accountability. That was for you, buddy. I love you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, first we'll talk with accountability, and then it looks like he makes an assessment. And this accountability comes in the form of a judgment that's at the end of the story. Did you see that? Now, Jesus is very consistent on this point. Whenever there, he offers a parable, he, has, he, offer, he tells a lot of parables that have to do with stewarding that also end in judgment. Have you ever seen that connection? The parable of the, uh, the, uh, the talents, the parable of the wicked tenants, uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant, the parable of the wheat and the tares. They, they all include stewardship as a part of what Jesus is talking about. This call to stewarding what we've been given. And uh, they also end with a giving of an accounting uh, to the master that, in the story. That, he's very consistent about that. And the assessment that looks like is being made, you see, in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself... And is not rich toward God. He's, it, it seems like these things are actually mutually opposing each other. Rich toward himself versus rich toward God. In another passage, he talks about you can't serve God and money at the same time. And that seems to be the same idea that he's talking about here. Now, what does it mean? This is the question that I think the passage leads us right to ask ourselves. That we need to examine in our own hearts. Is what does it actually mean for us? To be rich toward God. What does that mean? Now, I'm in real danger of like oversimplifying what is a very complex answer to that question. So I'd like to begin by saying that's a great question to take home with you today. That's a question for community groups to talk about or for you to gather up with a few friends and think about. What does this mean? What does this mean to be rich toward God? But put simply, it begins with Devoting all that we have, all that Jesus is talking about, our time, our presence, our gifts, our resources, who we are, uh, our vocations, all that we've been given to steward, to serving God and his purposes in the world. It begins with investing in the community of God's people, the, the, the people that you're around right now, the community of God's people that he gives. It also means investing in people that, that don't know who God is yet. They don't know Jesus. It means participating in God's mission to the world, that the world might know who Jesus is. It means caring for each other and caring for others and honoring God with, with all that, 
that he's given us. And, and listen, it, it, we don't do this for our own good or our own glory or that people might know our names or anything like this. We do all this as a, as a loving reflection of the one who was incredibly first, who was generous to us. What did we sing? Riches I need not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always. We live as God's people because Jesus has already taken care of our inheritance, that he has provided for us. And we live that reality out as a reflection of the one who gave himself, who, who, who surrendered everything. Because of his deep love for you, it becomes this reflective statement that we make. If, if how we think about our wealth and our possessions is a reflection of the true desires of our heart, then let love for Jesus shine through how we manage these things, through how we care for the people around us. That's what it means to be rich toward God, is that we would participate in his mission. And in my opinion, that's really the only way that we can embrace what Jesus is calling us to because that's, that's really the only way it makes sense to, to have such a tremendous view of what Jesus has done. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's reflective. And so the good question to ask ourselves that, that you might do an internal audit, <laughs> in what ways am I rich toward God? And, and I think what you would find is that living this way is actually really liberating. There's a lot, there's a lot of joy on the other side of that. One, because it frees us from chasing the impulses of our heart all the time. I mean, that, 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 that can be uh, incredibly tiring, chasing our discontent in order to satisfy it. But the other is that it is one of the ways that we learn and relearn what Jesus has done for us. It, 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 is, how, it is one of the ways that we remember, that we celebrate that we enjoy the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us, the one who surrendered everything, that embraced his own humiliation, that didn't see the glories of God, something to be held on to, but left it all because he loves his people so much. Let me give you an example, and I'll close by this. Kent Hughes is a pastor who uh, uh, is retired now, I believe, but he tells a story uh, about a woman he knew who um, grew up in a small Midwestern town. Uh, her and uh, her sisters had a father uh, during, who during the Depression era actually did quite well. He was a banker during the Depression era, did quite well. And so she grew up in, in one of the few uh, wealthy families in this Midwestern town. And she was the only one that left and went to school. And so she went to school uh, she married and then began a teaching career on the West Coast. All of her sisters stayed in town and married and built their lives there. And uh, when she came back home, uh, she came back home because her aging father had passed away suddenly. So she comes back home, and her and her husband were just appalled to see that uh, many of the possessions in the house had little, little notes stuck on them. Uh, this is Judy's, and this is Annie's, and this is Mary's. That her sisters were already starting to claim their inheritance. And that her mother was just sitting there. Her mother was just sitting there watching her sisters do all this. 
She said the silence was bitter and acrimonious and difficult and strained. And her and her husband didn't know what to do or what to say. And eventually it came time for dinner and they're all eating together under this acrimonious silence when suddenly her husband stood up. Now, look, when you're an in-law, you know, visiting with in-laws, like you got to choose your words carefully, right? But he stood up and he walked around behind the mother, the poor mother. And he said, you all have claimed what you want in this house, but I'm going to claim what we love the most. And he put his hands on her mother said, she's coming back with me. What a generous and loving statement that he made about what's truly important to him. And it's also a picture of what Jesus has done for us. That in a world where Jesus uh, lives in and, uh, and where people are pursuing their own self-interest all the time, he stood up and stood behind the chair of the people that he loved and put his hands on them. And said, these, these are the people that are most important to me. And so we hear the words of Jesus telling us to give ourselves away because he first gave himself away for us. Let me pray. Oh, you who are good and gracious. Oh, you who are generous and loving. Oh, you who don't hold back from your people. Uh, we worship you now, and we ask that you would help us uh, to hear what you have to say to us, that you would give us your love, that you would show us your favor, and help us to live as those who are deeply loved by you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.